what you're afraid of is that the people in charge are going to, for lack of a better word, ruin it. You know, these people, these people that love baseball and love baseball cards, they want to stay there. They want to stay involved and they want to stay passionate about it. And the only way they're going to deviate from that is if they're given a reason to go away. And a reason to go away could be a lockout that extends into the All-Star break. A reason to go away from that would be, you know, a fanatics company that changes everything and alienates its base, right? So what you want to see is the caretakers take care of baseball. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closet by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, joined this week by Sporting News baseball writer Ryan Fagan, and we are recording on-site. This is very exciting. We, we, we got out of our homes, we got out of the press boxes, and we are at Apotheosis Comics on Grand Boulevard in St. Louis. We've been opening some baseball card packs. We've been talking about baseball cards, and we're going to record a podcast here where we talk about baseball. I thought it was very interesting that one of the early packs that we opened had only the positions. So it said, like, Cardinals third baseman, and it said Mets first baseman, and it said Dodgers number one pitcher. So basically it was a lockout pack, right? Because we can't use their their names. Is that how that works right now? Yeah, that's that's phenomenal. It's um yeah, the, the 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 idea of the when we first saw the way that the new website was with the players' images, you know, um, not there, and the MLB.com website, I think that was kind of a a stark reminder of like what we're what we're, what we're in for as as people who enjoy watching baseball. Uh, it could be a it's gonna be an interesting interesting couple months here. What was that like? I mean, we did it feel when the when the clock struck midnight Eastern. So 11 p.m. St. Louis time, and the lockout started, and within minutes there was a statement from the commissioner. Did that have the sense of inevitability when you got it, when you when it arrived, or was there still kind of a moment of like, oh, man, really thought they were going to work this out? Yeah, and I, I think we all knew it was going to happen. I think the thing that struck me most when Manfred's letter came out was reading through it and just the language that he used and how he was trying to actively paint the Players Association um, as the bad guys. While not surprising to read it, was a little surprising in the tone and the words that he used. And that was the first time I thought we might actually lose some games. Mm. Um, until then, you know, I mean, I, I think that, and I still think this is not nearly the, the rift there was in 94, right? I, I don't think that there's going to be any World Series wiped out. Um, but the the gulf is not as great, I think. At least it seemed that way before reading that letter. And then Major League Baseball is clearly trying to to win the PR battle right away, to beat the players as the bad guys in this and say we're trying to do what we can and we're not getting any cooperation. I think that's what really struck me with reading his letter was, you know, we might miss spring training games. Um, we might miss a couple of games. You know, the season might be pushed back a little bit. I, I hope not. I still think that that's not going to happen, but reading that letter was the first time I thought it might actually be in play. I tried to describe that letter in the in the paper as the opening, you know, 
like Haymaker, the opening yeah. uppercut of, of, a, of a labor stoppage, of a work stoppage. It's officially a lockout because the owners imposed it. Um, some background on that, uh, you know, in case people are interested, there, there are essentially two types of work stoppages. There's a lockout and there's a strike. In 94, there was a strike because they began the 94 season without an active CBA. The owner said, well, we'll play on with the current rules. Um, and we'll get to that point because the, their attempt was to then impose a salary cap. The players waited until August right there on the eve of the bounty of a playoff rush. And then the money that comes with, you know, the revenue stream that comes with a postseason and then had their strike when it would hurt the owners the most and possibly the game the most. Uh, and then it lasted until 95. A lockout is different in the sense that it's like we don't have an operating agreement. We don't have a collectively bargained agreement. So we're going to stop things now it's the owner's way of taking away leverage from the players and apply pressure just to give some background on that there is no sense of when they'll next talk um we're as we're recording this it's day nine of the lockout where does your level of optimism pessimism stand right now as far as losing games has it changed since that night it hasn't changed necessarily since the letter um, with the initial readjustment, like kind of thinking about it in a different way. Because um, it seemed like heading into it, and you know, I talked to a lot of people both in baseball and outside of baseball, and the, the feeling seemed to be that both sides, they want what they want, right? Baseball wants things to continue kind of as they are. You know, the MLBPA wants some changes. Um, and it felt like they were both going to hold out until it became real. Right, so once spring training games started, and once spring training was about to happen, pitchers and catchers were going to report, and then owners kind of looked at the idea of losing uh, spring training revenue mm-hmm. and canceling games. Then they'd say, "Okay, well, maybe it's not that big of a deal. Let's really come to a compromise." I would have been stunned even on November twenty fifth if things were were agreed to before February, um, even then, because there was. You know, if they're going to get to December 1st, the difference between December 1st and February 1st is not that great. Except for Christmas sales. Like, it can be a time of Christmas sales as far as season ticket renewals, the group packages, stuff like that. I mean, like, the Cardinals are selling, uh, or imagine they'll talk about, like, a group package that is, like, the... What the history setting battery package because they can't use names, right, or whatever they're going to call it. And so, you know, I mean, it's not much of a pinch, but there is like a PR pinch and a ticket sales pinch related to the holidays. Well, and part of it too is because of all the, the lost revenue in 2020. Obviously, yeah. they're not coming off just a regular year, a regular two or three years. They're coming off, you know, when when revenues were down. You know, they didn't have any ticket sales for essentially a year. Um, and even in 2021, you know, they were it wasn't full ticket sales for for a while. So they're coming off that, and that's one of the reasons it seemed to me that they wouldn't take this into spring training, because spring training revenues in 2022 seem more important than spring training revenues in 2017, right? Um, you know, and again, reading the language that, that Rob Manford intentionally used, because they clearly had that ready to go. He didn't have weeks to write. I mean, look, they like pressed a button and they scrubbed all the faces from. So they were planning yes. for this. Yeah, they and that's and that I think you know that. That shows you how um, dug in MLB is and how intent they are on, you know, quote unquote, winning this negotiation. And I think, you know, the players are the players are motivated to get changed. The owners are motivated to kind of keep things the same. Right. But we right. see that keep things the same is not. Oh, we hope things 
intent stay the same. We are intended to make sure they stay the same, right? And that's the difference. And that's why, you know, I talk about that was the the realization that hey, we might lose games. That was kind of where it comes from. The uh, it's interesting that you use that phrase. I had a chance to talk with Andrew Miller shortly after he returned home. You know, from the the meetings there in Dallas and the discussions. You know, to kind of look through, you know, to, to talk through that. And he was back in Florida and uh, we spoke for a while just about what that experience was like. He's been on the executive committee before. He's now part of the negotiations for the union. His uh, his his movement around the hotel there was was very was was chronicled on Twitter almost step by step as to who he was meeting with when. But, you know, he talked exactly in those terms. He said those same terms. He goes, sometimes it sounds like Major League Baseball is out to win, not how can we win together. Do you, do you think at all that's a fair characterization of this? Or, I mean, in, in some ways, is that also maybe the opening for the union to win some of the PR battle? To kind of focus on, we want to make the game better. We want to get the best teams available out there. I mean, they're, they're talking points about tanking. Right. Uh, it should be really tangible for fans of a lot of markets who have seen their teams purposefully plunge. And while some of those teams get celebrated, the Astros, for example, the Cubs, certainly. But look at where the Cubs are now. I mean, they tanked, they won, but where are they now? The Astros tanked, um, won, but they tanked to a zero TV rating. Got back, won, won a lot, got to the ALCS quite often. Um, But now, can they keep their star shortstop in place? So is that sort of the opening, that, that conversation point about winning for the game winning for the fans and not winning at the boardroom table. Is that the opening for the union? I, I think so. And I think, but I, I think it's, it's an uphill battle for the union. You know, I mean, I, I talked um, with a couple of people for a story last week um, about the trouble that the union has, right. Winning this, this PR battle, um, winning this battle of, of public opinion, because what it comes down to essentially is the greedy, the greedy player, mm-hmm elements right because we know as people who watch baseball we know what players make we know exactly what they make we know exactly what clauses are in their contract we know how much they make and you say okay well you're you're pausing this you're taking this game away from us because you want what more money right and even if that's not the goal right i talked to tom glavin who was a big part of the the stoppage in 94 95 you know and he told me flat out he's like i i did too many interviews because i always thought i could change somebody's mind Mm -hmm. he's like and it never worked he's like i was naive in that fashion because we didn't want more money we just didn't want them to put a a salary cap on it right cap on earning potential exactly we just the way the way he phrased it and i'm gonna get it wrong exactly how i said it but we didn't want to stop owners from doing what they naturally would have anyway Mm. Right. Essentially, we didn't want them to say, "Okay, well, we're not going to give you this contract because because we have this salary cap." When and you know, if without a cap, they would just do whatever they wanted to, right? So I think that's part of the way. And to your point, the idea of more competitive teams to avoid tanking these are things that the players can try to use to try to shift that in their uh, um, favor a little bit because the the way that it is, the, the status quo that the owners want is not great you know when you have teams actively not just losing games right we're not talking about the teams that finish you know 72 and 90 that's not the big problem the problem is when you have four teams losing 100 games and two losing 110 Mm -hmm. right just absolutely not competitive teams and the problem is the system the way it's set up 
is it's like a double benefit to owners who do that. Because not only if you lose 110 games in a year, not only are you not paying salaries, like your salary, your payroll is way low, way below right. any sort of threshold that it should be at, but then you get a high draft pick, right? So it's a win-win for owners to lose 110 games. And the, the idea that that's a system that's in place right now is, is a little bit... Um, Let's just say if you were to start from scratch, that is not how you would put it in place. And I think that's something players need to kind of hit. The Astros do offer up an example, though, of like a, a concern about that is they tanked to get the high pick. They used that high pick on not Chris Bryant, Mark Appel, and didn't work. They used that high pick on Carlos Correa, absolutely did work. However, they only had six years of his career then in which to win. So, like, it, or as you look at the return on investment, I get, I get it. Like a World Series championship probably counters everything. Like yeah. if you were to talk to an owner, as far as the revenue that comes in, the prestige, the flag flies forever, all that stuff, the fan engagement, everything, you, you could probably make the argument that a World Series championship counters all. But f- for the Astros to tank as many years as they did, what, several 100 lost seasons in a row, correct? Yeah. Three. And then you you have as a result of that essentially Carlos Correa and Alex Bregman and Alex Bregman because they they picked Brady Aiken didn't sign him and then they got so it was a mark yeah, 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 the, yeah. sorry I had the wrong thank you for correcting me I had the wrong so we'll go back and not edit that out and I'll totally own that so um, but but it was Mark no I had it right yeah they did I, I had it right it was one. Aiken was the next one I'm sorry I, I'm totally right and I'm not editing this out and you just lived through this moment of panic with me that I thought I got it wrong but um, anyway so yeah you're right so then Alex Bregman but they and Alex Bregman they've signed to an extension so they're going to keep for a while but Carlos Correa is here and gone and how good are the Astros as Bregman's Astros versus how good are they versus Correa's Astros is that what we're going to find out is like really does tanking have any sort of lasting benefit or is the tanking cycle just perpetual you have to pull the plug to rebuild again and that's what these teams have entered into yeah, I think so. And I think part of it is, you know, and then that gets to another issue that is near and dear to the player's heart and in service time manipulation, right? Because if you feel like you have a player who's going to be a star, but you need the other guys to catch up to him, then maybe you hold him back a year. You know, you, you hold him back to get an extra year right. of, of time. And, and then, you know, and we've seen so many young players come in and not just be good early in their careers, but, you know, like the Juan Sotos and the Tatises and the uh, Vlad Jr. this year be the best players in baseball at age 22, 23 years old. Um, and we've seen some of them sign extensions, right? And we've seen some of them kind of play it out. But they're giving you MVP-type production while making league minimum right. or, or close to it. And I think that's one of the things that the players, you know, that's one of the areas that they want to address this year too is trying to get players compensated earlier when they are you know, are more actively online of what they would get um, if they were – open to the free market i've looked at it this and i've tried to distill this down for people to three things that there are like three elements of this and please push back if you think that i'm missing some but like if i'm gonna simplify this and like over dinner try to explain it (laughs) to somebody that there there are three elements to this two belong to the union and one is you know up to the owners first and foremost is exactly what you just touched on one is that 
players hope that younger players are compensated better for the production. One of the trends in baseball has been that the players are going younger in part because players who are younger are cheaper. And we see this constant churn of players who come up, maybe you know make the minimum up until that first time they become arbitration eligible, and then they're churned out, and sometimes churned out of the game, um, either because of injury or because they, la- they fall into that middle class range where the free agent market just doesn't quite get them, and all of a sudden they're showing up again on minor league contracts with non-roster invites, everything. It's just very different. But... Teams are far willing to go with a younger player who is can give them 75% of the production of an older player who can cost, oh, a little Dropkick Murphys, actually. Yeah, just an alarm to feed the dog. So. Oh, nice. Dropkick Murphys is your alarm to feed the dog? <laughs> it's my alarm for a lot of things. I, watched, I put it on the phone after I watched The Departed all those years ago, and it's just kind of... Stuck around. Oh, just stuck around. We, the, the Dropkick Murphys did like a live concert during one of the World Series there. It was something oh, yeah. else uh, there at Fenway Park uh, when the Cardinals were facing the, the Red Sox. Anyway, um, that's one is how do you get players compensated more when they're being relied on to produce more younger? And that doing so would then also address the vanishing mini middle class of players, the ones who all of a sudden reach free agency and find that teams are more likely to go young for a lesser player or for an aggregate of players. That's like one of the things that teams do a lot now is we can spend, you know, two and a half million to get this veteran to do middle relief, or we can rely on a carousel of four relievers from the minor leagues who, you know, don't have near the talent of that one guy, but we can do it for a fifth of the cost by just moving through them. Um, and it makes, I get, I get it. That's a frugal business decision that comes right down to money. But their thought is if they can get the younger players paid more earlier, that that will only, that will benefit like the young players like Jack Flaherty, the young players that you mentioned who are putting up MVP numbers and aren't paid at MVP rates. Um, the young players like a Chris Bryant, who's become kind of the, the face of service time manipulation and also have a trickle down effect effect of making the middle class players who do become free agents more appealing. Okay, so that's one. And I know I understand it's complex, but one, that's one is making sure the players are paid more for their production earlier in their career, more more representative of their productions. Two, some kind of safeguards, guardrails, whatever you want to put in there to prohibit tanking. They want to see teams who do bow out of the standings essentially say we're not going to contend this year they want to see them feel a pinch that and not have that incentivized as scott boris talked about they don't want it incentivized so that's two three is the owners the owners would like to increase the streams of revenue whether that's widen them or introduce new ones Um, widen them they want to increase the size of the postseason increase or introduce new tributaries of revenue that's putting ads on jerseys so those that is kind of the umbrella those are the three things do you, do you see something that i'm missing in that catch-all no I, I think that's a pretty good that's a pretty good explanation of it i think the thing about the the, the competition and tanking part of why players i think are so against tanking is because i like kind of like you said like these if, if you if the goal and I wrote something about this a couple weeks ago a month ago maybe now um, MLB needs to change the draft order the way it's set up in my opinion because you can't you have to stop if you want to stop tanking you have to stop giving the teams that aren't trying 
the best players, right? You have to not just, you have to incentivize trying to win. You have to incentivize trying to at least field a, a team that is, has a chance on a day-to-day basis to win 85 games, 80 games, something like that. And I think that's something that uh, the players want. And to do that, you know, if, if a team has a choice, okay, we can go with these three untested rookies who probably should still be at AAA, or we can go out and sign two or three veteran players who will cost a little bit more but can help us get to eight, to 81 wins to 500, then they'll, they'll do that because they're incentivized to do that. Right. right? I think that's, that's part of it, too. That's part of the, the players' concern about, you know, eliminating tanking. It's, it's a good thing. It would be better for baseball. It's not altruistic, right? <laughs> you know, let's not kid ourselves. It's not altruistic. But I, I think it, they look at it as a win-win. You know, they can get some of their veteran players um, paid and create more of a, um, a market for each of these guys, and, and they can have teams in Pittsburgh and you know I mean Cincinnati now is is basically I don't say giving people away but Mm -hmm. you know they just let Wade Miley go and they traded Tucker Barnhart you know they're not going to do that if they're punished for losing 100 games right right? and I think that's part of it as well it's a significant paradigm shift that maybe speaks to how long this lockout could go because in recent years certainly in the last decade you have teams talking about getting the value from players versus teams used to talk about getting the performance from players. I mean, you think back to, like, the 1980s. You and I have had a great blast opening some old baseball cards here um, from 1993, but it's allowing us to revisit some great players of the 1980s. And you think back to what they were paid, you know, and this old argument, too, like the teams would pay for, like, what a closer did for the previous team, you know, not the saves that they were going to get. Well, the conversation has changed completely, and that's sort of where the argument is right now is they – the union would like to see players paid for their production and teams increasingly are determining who they pay based on their value. Right. Look no further than what the Cardinals did, right? Okay. So the Cardinals signed Steven Matz four years for $44 million, 11 million AAV who got about twice that much Marcus Stroman who got four times as much, got as much in one year, as Steven Matt's contract will be worth for his entire career, Max Scherzer. Now, is Max Scherzer going to have four times the performance of Steven Matz? No. Is Marcus Stroman going to have twice the performance of Steven Matz? I would say no. And I like Marcus Stroman. But no, no. yeah, Marcus Stroman is a great fit. Yeah. Would have been a great fit. Well, I mean, he might he might be he might have been a far better pitcher with the Cardinals than he'll end up being with the Cubs unless they really improve their infield defense, and we'll see. But with the Cardinals, the proven defense, I mean, he would have been superb. But the fact of the matter is, he's paying being paid twice as much. Scherzer's being paid four times as much. This becomes a question of value. So the teams looked for and the Cardinals specifically, look for how can they maximize their value. They know that on the open market, you're likely going to get $43.3 million of production from Max Scherzer. Max Scherzer is really good, and unless he's injured, he's probably going to provide you $43 million. He might provide you $38 million, $37 million, whatever the argument is. But he's going to, he's going to cost you several dollars more than the production he's going to provide. Whereas Matt's, if you put him with the defense that they have, they're betting that he's going to provide twice as much value as actual cost. 
And that's where the conversation has been. Like this, this we're, the, we're making the value play and look at the return we get as opposed to we're making the most, we're getting the best player. It's not about getting the best player. It's about getting the best value. That seems like a hard conversation to change. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's interesting, you know, to see the way that this has evolved. You know what I mean? And, and players now, the MLBPA trying to make getting younger players paid is a different focus than they had for a long time. Because forever it was, you know, let's worry about getting the free agents paid, the top free agents the most, and then that will kind of trickle down a little bit when it comes to, you know, arbitration comps and all these different things. That'll raise, you know, as as Tom Glavin told me, he's like, the, the, the theory used to be, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, right? And to see them focusing on the younger players, that, that's a shift too. So I think that's why when you look at this, this lockout and this uh, work stoppage as a whole and you kind of look at both sides, that's why it's a little different, right? Mm-hmm. It's a different conversation from both sides than we've seen um, in the past, which, you know, I mean, from one perspective makes it fascinating. And the second, if you want baseball to happen on, you know, on time, it makes it a little scary. To kind of move back to what you were talking about, that article you did for, you know, where you talked to Tom Glavin and you kind of explored this notion of the players not having the popular opinion. Um, We, we do hear kind of owner lexicon in the fan base. They talk about value. They talk about not overspending. They talk about being worried about payroll um, again, which was way different than I think, you know, when we were growing up where we did talk about, you know, how do you get the best player? How, how does the best player end up on your favorite team and what, what does it cost? Whatever the owner has to spend. Clearly, that is something that is different than we see in other walk of lives. Let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, how many other arenas do you hear people go, yeah, let's side with the corporate entity and not with the workers? You know, it's just so fascinating. What did you, what did you kind of find as some reasons for that? Why do fans gravitate towards the owner and is it possibly the free agency has introduced this notion of moving around players and therefore the laundry and the owner is the constant yeah that's a good point i hadn't really thought about it in that way but i think one of the things that you know in talking i talked with susan whitborn who was a professor of psychology at um amherst um and she talked about the difference in ways that we look at sport mm-hmm. and competitors and it's the difference between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation, we played as a kid because we loved it, right? We loved being out there. And that's why when you hear people say, you know, I would, I would play this game for free. Why are you complaining that you're getting a million less than you, you think you should, right? And that's the motivation, the intrinsic motivation, because that's how fans, and I say we, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of baseball. That's how we look at it, right? Yeah. Um, the difference is extrinsic motivation is when you're doing something because you're paid, right? And you're being paid to do something so that becomes your primary motivation and the gap the chasm between the way fans look at how they think baseball players should approach the game right this intrinsic they think players should be intrinsically motivated and that takes out the owners because the owners they expect them to be extrinsically motivated they expect the owners to be how much money can i make how much you know value can I extract from this player? So it's this difference. It's almost like the fans, they, they, they put this intrinsic value on the players and an extrinsic one on the owners. So you're more likely to be to feel betrayed by the players because you're not, because they don't look at it the way you think they should, right? And I think that's a big thing. That's what, you know, um, 
uh, Susan Whitborn talked about was just this this gap between the way that baseball really is in sports. You know, not just baseball, obviously, but the way that athletes look at what they do versus mm-hmm. the way that fans look at how we think they should look at how they do. And I think that's why you see more anger towards the players because you expect the owners to do this. And you feel almost betrayed by the players because they look at it a different way than you think they should. That's a fascinating thing. That, that, that kind of implies that fans already see the owners as villains. Right. And so they're not betrayed by the actions when a villain acts like a villain. Right. It's when the hero acts, acts like a villain that you feel most betrayed. Yeah. Right? And I mean, that's. And she used a term, and I forget exactly what it is because um, I don't have the story in front of me, but it's um, something about like crowding out. Right. Where this, 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 you feel like it should be intrinsically motivated, and this extrinsic motivation crowds out right. the intrinsic motivation in the way you look at these things. And yeah, I think that's that's part of where the gap is. You know, and that doesn't apply to everybody, but yeah. I think it's a, generally, you know, she's studied this thing, she's written papers, she's written a lot about, you know, sports fan psychology, and I think that's one of the things that she brought up. And I've talked to her a couple of times. That's the things she brought up. How did, how did working on that story, and now after writing that story? sort of alter or influence the lens you look at the lockout like like does it influence like the tone you want to take in your coverage or or maybe something that you're like gosh i need to do a better job of including this in my coverage well i think you know i mean you know how it is every time you you talk to somebody you bring something else in and it's another perspective whether you adapt that perspective or not um it 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 helps you to broaden the way you look at something because it's easy to get locked in a rut and you say, okay, this is the thing and this is the only way, you know, and, and you just have to step back sometimes. So I think that was part of it, you know, and, you know, to be honest, that story was kind of my idea, mm-hmm. right? Based on notions I had had in the past because, you know, I, mean, I, w- I went through the lockout of 94, or the strike, sorry, the strike of 94, 95. You know, I was a, a huge baseball fan back then and it never made sense to me why people seemed to, Direct so much hatred towards the players because yeah. it seemed like well they were active in the strike like right, like right. the owners had an edge there where it they could say like the strike canceled yes. this World Series yeah and but it still made sense to me like it didn't make sense to me to side with the billionaires over the millionaires like if somebody's wrong I get so know, frustrated with that phrase as you know yes yeah. I know but uh, you know so that's kind of where I was coming from yeah, yeah you know and I didn't present it in that way but I just said okay well here's my question. What do yeah. you think? And then talking to Tom Glavin, you know, he was like, "Yeah, that's absolutely the way it was." Like in, in his perception, at least. This is this is. I mean, it's such an interesting because there are thirty principal owners essentially. I don't know, thirty owners, but there are thirty principal owners where they own a majority of the team or all of the team or only a portion of the team. In the case of the Dewitts, and they're the chairman of the team. Um, but there are thirty principal owners where there are what eighteen hundred or could be eighteen hundred players represent and so what you have is like this fractured feeling like i can i can hear from one fan who champions the need for minor leaguers to make a better wage and at the same time they get frustrated that it's millionaires versus billionaires and it's like whoa whoa, whoa, wait a minute like you know there are a couple players on every 40-man roster right now that will never make the major league minimum they just won't they they might make a prorated part of it they might have a hundred glorious days in the majors they might get a cup of coffee some of them might not ever get there at all and just like dismiss this as like millionaires versus billionaires like misses the fact that for every one max scherzer for every one nolan arenado there are five 
who are not ever i mean i should know the number off the top of my head maybe i should look into that but it's going to be like you know somebody has to counterbalance that to make the league average salary right around four and those are the five guys who are never going to make the minimum who are on every 40 man and that's part of this conversation that seems to be lost and that's possibly because it's complicated right i mean you the like you said we all know what the players make we don't the owners don't walk around with their dollar figure on their, you know, on their necktie. Right. You know, and even if they did, um, you know, I think there's a lot of mistrust on how the books are done, you know, and how much they're actually making, how much is being recorded one this way. And it's not necessarily um, the reality that way. That's one of the things that Glavin talked about. You know, he's like a 94, 95. He's like, they wouldn't show us their books. And even if they did, right. you know, do we trust that they're showing us the actual picture? So I think that's, that's a huge part of any salary cap is knowing yes. what cut of the revenue. But the argument in this I ran into and covered, like people should recommend that, or should notice like that the definition of revenue is huge yeah. in any negotiation. And for Major League Baseball, is that advanced media? Is that right. MLB network? What, what do owners consider part of their revenue? And what are they willing to acknowledge as part of their revenue? And can, like you said, can the players trust it? Yeah, and I think getting back to what you were kind of talking about, the, the way different fans view the players it's also a challenge for the mlbpa because they have so many players in so many stages of their life you know like you know like it used to be all about okay well let's get the free agents paid like we talked about let's get the top guys paid and it'll trickle down well and it's it's not that way kind of how we talked about this year or you know earlier it's there's still some of that element right but there's more of the focus on getting the younger guys paid and you know the the wants and needs um to be represented by the union of a guy who is you know, hoping to get a cup of coffee, maybe get a chance, get an opportunity, somebody gets hurt, stick around for a year is different than the needs and wants of, you know, the guys in the executive committee. Um, and when the at the All-Star game, before the All-Star game in Colorado, I talked with a couple of guys on that executive committee, mm. um, Garrett Cole and, Mark, and um, Marcus Semyon, kind of like, how are you approaching it? And they both said, you know, like, our goal is – because we all knew this was coming, right? There's, there's no surprises here. We knew this was coming. Um, everybody in baseball knew that there was probably going to be some sort of stoppage um, once December 1 passed. Um, they said, our goal is just to make sure we're on the same page, to make sure that we have um, our players, uh, we give them all the information they need, they want. We're you know, trying to do our best to listen. And if they have questions, we'll get them answered. And I think so. Even talking to them back in July yeah. and hearing kind of where they were as a union from their perspective, you know, and it it was in the open interview setting, so it wasn't a one on one. You get right, different right, answers, right. right? But it still was it was clear that they they had kind of that united front with those guys, and I think that's important too. I asked Andrew Miller if the the negotiations that about the return to play in 2020 they got such attention and yeah. seemed so acrimonious, and obviously had a lot of leaks that came became public. I asked him if that forged the union onto like the same page. If what happened then and what the owners proposed at that point in time, if that kind of galvanized the group, and I use the word forge, and he goes, I think that's it. I think that's the right word. I think he goes that experience prepared us for this one. And that's why they're such on the same page. What what would you what would you like to see come out of this? I mean, obviously, we want to see an end to it, a new CBA, um, five years, you know, maybe five years plus, if it's going to be arduous of of an agreement that will carry it for that for that length. What would you like to? See? What do you think are some reasonable expectations for both sides to come away with? Um, I think 
it, it's reasonable to expect that, you know, because again, we talk about MLB would like to keep more of the status quo, but I think it's reasonable to expect that they could give a little bit yeah. on getting guys paid. And some of the proposals, even though they seemed a little crazy and, you know, not free, every player is a free agent at 29 and a half, which, you know, is great for the guys who come up at 20, 26, but not so much for the ones that come up at 19. Um, but at least show that they were willing to think about that, right? So maybe, you know, you get to arbitration, you don't have to wait as long to get to arbitration. Maybe you don't have, you get to free agency a year sooner or give teams some sort of mechanism to have a better chance to keep some of their guys. Um, I think that's reasonable, hopefully reasonable. But, I mean, the, the biggest thing is you, you don't want to see them lose games, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to see them lose spring games, but you really don't want to see the season push back because with everything that's happened in the world, yeah. I mean, there's, there's never a good time to have a work stoppage in season. There's never been a worse time than right now. Yeah. Right? And I don't want to say you do things because of the optics, but you do things because it's, it's right, right? You know, I mean, there's both sides still making a lot of money, and that's what they're going to, each side's going to preach. You're still making a lot of money. What are you complaining about? That's what Rob Manfred said in his letter. The players still have the best deal of any sport, right? Yeah. So you saw that phrasing, and that's one of the things I talked about. Um, but you, you hope that both sides say, okay, we can find some sort of ground to not come off as the absolute worst people in the world because there's no winners in that situation. You're right. I think it's, I think baseball, I've, I've said it on the podcast before. I think it's kind of at a fragile time because of that, you know, baseball has such a prominent role in our culture. And one of the reasons why is it's because it's always been there. What happens if it's not, uh, you know, I think that could be a breach of contract, a breach of a breach of cultural contract. W- would you like to, do you think any of these new, would you like to see expanded playoffs? Are you resigned to expanded playoffs? I mean, look, I'll, I'll be honest. I hated the wild card when it came out. I was against it because I loved the idea of playing a whole season. And then it came out, and I was like, you know what? I was wrong. I like the wild card. I like having more teams. I like, as much as anything, I like having more fan bases involved. I don't think, like, 2020 was too much. There were too many teams, right? If they want to add one more team, but they want to figure out some sort of scenario that adds – I don't want to say an extra round, but adds something else. Adds a couple more teams, a couple more fan bases to get to the postseason, a couple more fan bases that are involved in the chase, you know, to get um, more fans involved and invested in September baseball. You know, that that's okay. I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, and I, I doubt the players necessarily hate that too. They just don't want to give that up without yeah. getting something that they really want. And Absolutely. I think, yeah, and that, that's one of the things that when I talked about earlier, like I, I had hope that it would get to February – We'd get to the crunch time the last minute before they could do something, and then they would have a deal, right? Because those are things I think that both sides can give on. Um, we'll see. You know, I, I still I still have hope that this will be resolved before March. Um, I don't feel as confident as I, I once did, but, you know, we'll see how things go. I, I feel like there's just going to be a long time, weeks, without any updates, without any sort of talks. As you said, there's no... There's no, there are no talks scheduled necessarily. I think Manfred talked about the need to create urgency with the lockout, you know, right after the December one deadline passed. Um, we'll see how that goes. I think the holidays. I mean, let's we can be honest about that, right? I mean, if both sides go to their corners through the holidays, yeah, it's not great. You know, yeah, it doesn't give the perception that things are in motion, but it doesn't effectively change the yeah. outcome. They, you know, that that was one. There were two moments of clarity for me that cut through the PR statement and were actual like statements of like, Hey fans, this is what's going on. 
from Manfred and maybe even like where he like kind of dropped the the curtain a little bit and showed folks behind what what it really means and one was when he said at the owners meetings that a lockout at this time does not cost us games and what and if that's what it takes to not cost us games then look that's what's going to happen and it doesn't perceptibly change things you know the deadline there is no deadline you know march 1st still kind of has the nebulous feel of one because you want players back or knowing that they should be back on the field pitchers preparing for an on-start time and that is kind of around march 1st that was one that was at the owners meetings where he kind of said look a, a lockout at this time does not cost us anything it's 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 basically just saying we're gonna we're gonna stop the business of baseball and focus on the negotiation of CBA, which would have been great if he had said that, but but that's that's effectively what he was revealing. Right. The other part, which was at the press conference of the day after the lockout, was where he said the owners did this to avoid the threat of a strike, essentially admitting that the owners used the one lever at their disposal to maintain leverage. But from here, from here on, the players' leverage increases. Yeah. You know, because you are going to start losing things that the owners prioritize first. So I thought that was I appreciated his honesty there, where yeah. he said, "This is the one. This is the one card that the owners have to play to maintain some leverage. We could continue going on, and the players could strike. We could continue going on, and the players delay, delay, delay. This was the one thing that we had, and they played it. Would you like to see a change to the draft? I would, because I, I, I think again, you know, as I've said a couple times, I think yeah. we need to stop rewarding teams. What change? I guess I think we need to, you know, um, I, 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 my, my proposal, and I, you know, propose or whatever. Not that MLB is like, hey Ryan, what do you think? But you know, if they if they want to ask, you know, I, I wrote it about it. Um, you know, it's basically changing who gets the number one pick, okay. right? And so, no longer is it the team with 105. So essentially, what I'd like to do is take every team that misses the playoffs, you add their losses together, and the average number of losses. Typically, most years I ran it for a couple of years, it winds up like at 89, 90, right? So the teams that are in that level at 89, 90 losses, they get the best chance in a lottery style. With the number one pick, huh. and every team that misses the postseason gets at least a chance, kind of like the NBA lottery, where right. you know last year the Golden State was the 13th team, so they had like 0.01 percent, something right. like that. Still a chance, but technically they weren't going to get it. So you have some sort of scenario like that where you're rewarding teams that are at least trying to put a good product out, right? Because when I talked about, you know, the problem is not the 72 and 90 teams. You know, the problem is the teams that are losing 105. So you want to try to at least incentivize teams to put a good product out on the field. Right. Because, you know, I mean, the Diamondbacks didn't have, you know, they lost 110 games this year. They didn't have zero fans at games, right? They still had paid fans, you know, maybe not as many as other teams. Well, they had Dodger fans there for Dodger <laughs> games. There you go. So they still I mean, they, they had Cubs fans there for Cubs game. I mean, Phoenix is kind of interesting with the spring training That's aspect. true. So maybe I say Baltimore. So Baltimore, they still didn't have <laughs> zero fans there. But yes, yeah, so when you, the Yankees came to town, because you got the train down, you see. And Boston's not that far away. And right. yeah, But you want to, you want to, you want to, you want to not just incentivize teams to not lose. You want to punish teams for losing. Right. Right. And I think that's what you have to do, because right now, as I said, it's it's a win-win. If you win, lose 105 games, you save on payroll, and you get the number one pick. You know that's that's not a good system. Right. It's not a good system. If the goal is to have every team try, you know, we talk about salary caps and salary floors and all these things, and you know, maybe in some world that that would that would work. 
Um, but we both know the players aren't going to agree to that, right? And yeah. I think it's not worth it's not worth the the year long, two year long stoppage that it would would take to get there. Um, so that that's what I would love to see. I would love to see um, teams rewarded for trying. You know, try to get, you try to get to the playoffs, you win eighty eight games, and you still have a better chance of getting a top five pick than the team that loses one hundred and five. That's essentially what I would love to see. And, and the DH will be in the NL. You just yeah, yeah. I think so. That's fine. I was always against that forever. Again, and, and nothing seems so much bigger than that. I know. Yeah. Now you're like, yeah, sure, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. you know, I think both sides like that. Yeah. You know, um, MLB is trying to present it as something they would concede to the MLBPA, which I'm not sure is really how the MLBPA, MLBPA sees it because it's a benefit for the player for the owners right. too. But there's more offense in that game. Um, but yeah, I think that's. That's the first thing that's going to go. It was totally. Is there one thing, and this has been kind of moved off the table, but it, it will inevitably creep back on. Is there one thing that you'd like to see added to change the play on the field? That, too, is collectively bargained. Yeah. All the focus is on economic, but the rules are collectively bargained in a sense that who governs them, who agrees to them. And then this most recent CBA did have the thing where the commissioner could introduce something, negotiate, and then a year later impose. So I don't know if the new CBA will have that or not, but um, I guess none of us do at this point. But that was the system. was That was why you could see something introduced, the three batter minimum, one spring, discussed, dismissed, and then imposed the next spring. So is there one thing that you would like to see added to the field to, to make the, the game better there? I think some sort of pitch clock is not a bad thing. You know, there, there's too much time. There's too much time, and it's not just pitchers' faults, batters' faults too. You know, stay in the box. You know, and I understand if there's if there's the ninth inning and there's two guys on base, and you know there's two outs, and the pitcher wants to make sure they get the signs right. That's that's fine. But when it's a you know when there's nobody on base, when you're in the middle of a game, you don't, you don't need to take 30 seconds between pitches, right? You just don't, right? And I think that that's something that you know baseball has been very happy with some of the results that they've had in um, in the minor leagues, and I think that's something that will at some point get there because most a lot of the players who are you know four or five years in the majors they've already played with that they did that in the minors right so i think it was something that would have been really tough to just snap your fingers and say okay next year we're going to do it but so many of these guys have already done it that i don't think at some point um it's going to be that big of a deal so the rain and chill kind of forced us inside so we were doing this podcast inside but we had a chance to do so at apotheosis comics on grand in their wizards study that's the name of this room with Um, boba fett right outside the window looking at us that's that's not boba fett man that's the mandalorian mandalorian. with it's (laughs) (laughs) baby yoda but Oh, I didn't even see it. Yeah, yeah. Baby Yoda's in the house. Yeah. See, that's the thing. I didn't see Baby Yoda. Oh, no. Sure, that's no, the reason why. The no. Look, you can sit over here. I'm at the angle. You can't see Baby Yoda. No, but see the emblems and stuff on his yeah. on his helmet and chest. That should have given it it's away. True. You know, Boba Fett is more colorful than... than Maybe, can I blame it on the, the tint on the window? Sure. Yeah, sure. I'm yeah. going to say that. Though. I think you just don't know your Star Wars Space Knights. Yeah, no. I'm, I will fully admit that. So we, uh, I did watch the season one of Mandalorian, but I oh, did... I it did. shows. Yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we, we came here to open baseball cards as well. So we opened some of these Donruss triple play cards, which are fantastic. They're from 1993. Um, and basically our goal was to get the nickname cards, yes. which replaced the player's name um, in some cases with their nickname. So like Nolan Ryan's card has Express or the one that we wanted to get was the Griffey card that just says Junior. There's also a Will Clark that says what? What does it say? Thrill. Yeah, that's right, Thrill. um, Frank Thomas that I got that says Big Hurt. Um, Deion Sanders says Prime Time. These are the ones that we found so far. I would be remiss not to talk baseball cards with Ryan here. He does a pack a day on Twitter. You can follow him. And what's your address? Sir? Just at Ryan Fagan. At Ryan Fagan. That's two A's in Fagan. At Ryan Fagan. So three A's, triple yes. A in his name. There we go. At Ryan Fagan of the Sporting News. Let's end with some quick baseball card talk. Yes. What is your favorite Tops year. Well, no, I shouldn't limit it to tops. What is your favorite design year? No, oh, it's still it's still tops. It's the eighty seven. Has to be tops. Yeah, it's the eighty seven tops. You know, what I mean, because and there, there's a describe you know, them to. This is a podcast, so it's the it's the wood grain border set, yeah. right? Um, not the first wood grain border set. Fifty five Bowman had a wood grain border, kind of the TV. Um, Sixty two tops had a wood grain border. The eighty seven tops was kind of a um, in the twenty fifth anniversary of sixty two tops was kind of a a nod. To that yeah. year, oh, cool! Right, but that's the year that you know. That's the year that I grew up collecting. That's the year that I went to the Ben Franklin. You know, rode my bike up to Ben Franklin and came back with a. Where was the know, Ben Franklin? In in, in St. Charles, um, right off of West Clay, and there was a, a a baseball card shop that was by the bowling alley there. Um, uh, baseball Plus, who's he still? Mark still has a store out of Madurus Mall Drive now. But yeah, it was, it was it was those cards. It was getting the '87 tops. It was going up to convenience store, you know, and taking seventy-five cents, three quarters, and getting a couple packs. And that's that's where the the love started. So that's that's the all-time, the all-time favorite set. '93 Upper Deck is another one that's yeah, way up there. Good. But you know nothing really compares to '87 tops. That's the Future Stars Bo Jackson card. Which, uh, oh, the, yes. If people are thinking about it, that yes. though the '87 has the Future Stars Bo Jackson card where he's drifting back to catch a fly ball, no, and it's it's, just, it's, it, it's art. It's just pure art. That is my that is my favorite card. So I think that's, that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, I think that's that's got to be my favorite card because Bo Jackson was this larger than life. I mean, I remember I had a shirt. You remember those those shirts that had the big car- like the cartoon with the big giant heads? And, yeah, yeah. You know, I had a Bo Jackson shirt with the character, and my dad one time took me to Kauf- took us to Kauffman Stadium, and we watched Bo Jackson. And you know, it was the first time I'd ever sat like way in the upper deck, in the upper deck. That Kaufman is steep. Yeah. I remember every time I stood up, my dad would like stick his arm out in front of me to make sure I didn't like That's topple. Awesome. And we weren't near the rail either. He just to make sure I wouldn't topple down the steps. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, that that Bo Jackson, you know, he's a he was the guy, and um, to have his rookie card, you know, and the other rookie cards, the other Bo cards are great, the Donners and the Fleer. But man, that tops with the Future Star logo. That was that was where it's at. Is, is, when you say that's your favorite card, is that your favorite card from that set? No, that's my that's my favorite card. That's your favorite card my, by that, far. That's my favorite card. You know, I know a lot of people say the '89 Griffey Upper Deck. You know, I never had one. I've still never had one. Really? We we, we opened up a box um, for a video series we did at Sporting News a couple years ago. We opened a box of '89 Upper Deck, and we did not get a Ken Griffey Junior card. And I. I mean, I'm a grown man, and I can't tell you how disappointed I was. <laughs> Much more so than I should be. We got five Carlos Quintana star rookies, and not a single Griffey Jr. So I'm, you know, and yeah, my cousin had one um, that had it looked like somebody had taken a hole punch to it. Yeah. On the bottom, it had a half circle out of it. 
And I was jealous of that because it was still the Griffey oh, 89 for that. Probably from the pack. You're right. So, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I, 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 I still think that I think like maybe his little brother Mark did that mm. and wouldn't tell him. Uh, that's funny. Well, some of those packs had that, that yeah. punch in them um, from what well, I think when the boxes were something stolen like or something. Yeah. Um, so is that? I was going to ask you what your white whale is, what your Moby Dick is, what you're what you're chasing. Is that it? Is it the is it the Griffey? I think it's got to be because it's just it's. I mean, if you're ranking the most iconic cards of the Junk Wax era, it's it's number one, right? And I've got so many cards from the Junk Wax era that I've bought over the last couple of years, but I, I don't have that one. You know, and I've looked at, at buying, but then part of the problem is, too, is there's so many counterfeit ones out there. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm hesitant to buy, like, an ungraded one on eBay, but I don't want to buy a graded one because, I mean, I want it, but I don't want to spend that much money. You know, I just want to have it. So, And plus, part of it is you want the, the joy of opening the card out of a pack. Yeah. You know, like another iconic card from back then was the 89 Fleer Billy Ripken. And you know which one I'm talking about with the, the colorful metaphor written on, written on his bat knob. Um, is that a colorful metaphor? Is it? Uh, well, isn't that what, you know, and I'm showing my nerd here, but in one of the Star Trek, Spock calls them uh, the curse words colorful metaphors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that was a reference to that more than anything. See, that fits right in here at the comic yeah, shop. Yeah, I, have I, have I, have I, um, You've regained some yeah, cred. There we go. So, um, yeah, so you know it's the the FF card, and I got one of those out of a pack last year. Oh, really? And I not the scribbled, not the no, black not box. The scribbled the actual word. I'd opened a couple of packs that had the, the black box on it, um, but got the actual card with the words, and I I I screamed out loud. You know, I'm not, I'm not afraid to to admit it. It was it was pretty cool. Do you have a card that is kind of a a personal i mean you might have many of them but like like kind of like an insidery okay this is this is a either the design of it or the player of it or the moment captured in it that you know i you were kind enough to give me a stack of robin ventura cards i have i have many robin ventura cards um some of which are you know really my favorite one was is the tops where he's in the um, the old throwback White Sox, oh, yeah. you know, when that's a classic one. 91 Upper Deck. Yeah. And then 91 Upper Deck did it too. I think 91 Upper Deck, yeah. 91 Stadium Club did it as well. And then you have the, the number one draft pick card that they put out where he was in the Oklahoma yeah, State. Tops, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, do you have do you have a, a personal kind of favorite card? Not like the, but that's kind of like insidery. That's a great question. Um, I know growing up, once it got past eighty seven, when I tried to actually like get cards because the eighty eight cards were blah, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the eighty nine Donruss Tom Gordon rated rookie. Yeah. That was a card. I, for whatever reason, I was wildly obsessed with Tom Gordon, this kid who came in and closed down games, and the way that he threw, you know, like put everything into it, you know, and that that Tom Gordon rated rookie, the '89 Donners, was just so cool. And I remember the first time I had opened up enough of them to have a page of oh, Tom yeah. Gordon's in my binder, right? And I would, you know, take it around to baseball card shows and baseball card shops, and like, what do you give me for this page of Tom Gordon's? And I was like expecting to say like. A thousand dollars, right? But everybody's like, "Oh, you no, know, like you like him, kid. Go ahead and keep him." So, I wasn't disappointed about that. But yeah, the the page of Tom Gordon's that was that was kind of a I always look at that as a cool moment in 
in my collecting growth. So some kid's going to get stuck with like a page of the 2020 Allen Ginter card that they did. <laughs> Poor kid. Ugh. Oh, well, sorry. Sorry about that, people out there who are listening. But um, that's all. Yeah, I remember that Tom Gordon card. That one, that's really good. Now we'd have to refer to him as Red Sox Closer. Yes. Correct. Um, so keeping in the theme, which is not really holiday festive, but more maybe even bordering on pessimistic about baseball, are you concerned about where cards are going because tops has been dropped oh. 70 years um of tops is this year they just had their seven release they got a few more years uh yeah. of doing the cards before that license is up and then it moves to fanatics yeah. do you have some i mean beyond the pangs of nostalgia that we feel like well tops cards aren't tops cards though i bet we're still going to refer to them as tops cards it's going to be like kleenex or xerox yeah but do you have some <clears throat> concerns yeah i mean i think like with everybody i was i was shocked i was reading the the articles waiting for some sort of oh yeah by the way tops is still gonna be able to do this right um you know i think we all we we have hopes right and what i would hope is that maybe fanatics buys tops and they use tops and use their license or use their imagery you know and buys the right to do that and still keeps those people from tops Mm -hmm. there and involved in the process because you know and the reality is, is fanatics paid for this and they, they have nothing right there's right. no infrastructure there's nothing right and i think that they talked about wanting to do much more of a direct to consumer um approach than the card and then tops and, and panini have right now um but i would i would love to see tops still part of it and not just in a um i, I definitely don't want to see them go away you know i mean tops is tops is baseball cards i mean they, they are there's no other way to look at it whether you like them or not, you know the tops are baseball cards right now, and they've had they had some dud years, right? They made some mistakes. They made way too many. Of these Seventy years, years you're going to have them, you're right? You're going to you're going to have them, but you know they they are they are baseball cards, and it wouldn't be the same without it. My fear, you know, to contrast that hope that Fanatics maybe brings tops into the is that Fanatics doesn't want to have anything to do with it, and they say we bought this because we want it to go in a new direction, and this is the way we want it, and. I hope that is not the case. I hope that um, Fanatics still sees value in having cards available. You know, they don't make everything this super high priced release. The prices, you know, and we we talk about prices kids out because that's part of it. But it's the prices the regular person out, yeah. right? You know, I mean, I, I go to Target and now now that you know we're back to the point that you can actually find cards at Target and Walmart yeah. now because most of the time you can. There won't be a lot, but you can find something there. You know, I don't want to have to spend $40 right. to get, you know, a, a blaster of uh, Prism that costs, you know, that has five packs with four cards in each. You know, it'd be nice if there's they still understand the value in building, um, building future collectors one at a time and keeping people like me who still want to buy, but we don't want to make every. You know, every time I go to the card aisle and target, it shouldn't be an investment question. Right. You know, so I, I hope that you know we talk about the future of tops. I hope or of, of cards. See, I even said tops absolutely because yeah, yeah, that's how much it is. But when we talk about the future of it. I think that's one of the things that I really hope that, that fanatics gets that part of it. It doesn't get enamored with that bottom line. As we've talked here through this podcast, I'm really struck by the similarities that both baseball, the game, and baseball, the cards find themselves yeah. in. Baseball, the game had such uh, has such talent in it, just such amazing talent, such young, vibrant, um, such compelling talent. Guys have never thrown harder. There's never been 
I mean, it just seems like there's just never been this many athletes in the game. We talk about how Bo Jackson stood out. Right. You can go watch a game, and there are like now you know 20 guys who are athletic and amazing, like Bo Jackson. More power, more velocity, harder to hit than ever, and yet some of the best defensive plays we've ever seen. Just there's so much talent in the game, and it means so much, and it was so exciting as it came back. And while there are elements of each game that are still slow and dragging and problematic – Overall, you still see some compelling games, and because yeah. there's likely 15 every night, there might be one that you just like are riveted by. Yeah. Baseball is like it, it just seems like baseball has a lot going for it, and then a lockout hits. Baseball cards, you know, renewed interest, nostalgia, vibrancy as a result, you know, of people going home and staying in, you know, inside during the pandemic and trying to reconnect and collecting going up. And then Tops piggybacks on that with this amazing Project 70 yeah. where they've unleashed artists upon baseball cards. And you're right, that, that, that Bo Jackson card looks like art. Well, now they're literally art. I mean, they're, they're, some of them are just so amazing. And so you have like this huge upswing and just attention coming to baseball cards. And oh, by the way, then we're going to pull the plug and go in an opposite direction. It just seems like both of them are at such a precarious point, And there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the bottom line is there's still, there's a sizable portion of this country that loves baseball. And there's a portion of this country that loves collecting, that loves baseball cards, all these different things you can do. And not just baseball cards, but, you know, football and basketball and all. And what you're afraid of is that the people in charge are going to, for lack of a better word, ruin it. Right? You know, these people, these people that love baseball and love baseball cards, they want to stay there. They want to stay involved. And they want to stay um, passionate about it. And the only way they're going to deviate from that is if they're given a reason to go away, right? And a reason to go away could be a lockout that extends into the All-Star break. A reason to go away from that would be, you know, a fanatics company that changes everything and alienates its base, right? So what you want to see is the caretakers take care of baseball and uh, baseball cards. And I hope I hope they do. You know, you hear comments from you know like kind of like you talk about Manfred saying that you know we're doing this now so we can avoid games missed you know that was I, I loved hearing that I was I was the my favorite thing that Rob Manfred's ever said <laughs> you know and you know you hear fan, fanatics say some of the right things when you know, they talk about what their vision is right you, you want to believe them because you want it to like I said you want the, the caretakers to take care and you but you don't I don't want to say this carefully you want to believe that you have reason to believe that, but you're you don't feel confident in that. You know, I think that's you know talk about the precariousness of it all. I think that's kind of what it comes down to. Well said, Ryan. Special thanks to the Apotheosis Comics here on Grand Boulevard in St. Louis for the use of their Wizards study with the Mandalorian. There you go. Have you learned something today, Ryan? I, I have learned to not speak about Star Wars when I'm not 100 percent confident. <laughs> also, sit where I can see Baby Yoda. That's right. what I'm that, that would have done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Ryan, so much for joining. That's Ryan Fagan of the Sporting News. Much appreciated. Good conversation. Um, we'll have to uh, we'll have to talk about baseball cards and when it's more like of an optimistic variety. Uh, wish you a happy holidays. And should we get should we get back to opening? Yeah, I got like what ten of them left. Let's let's bust them out. Yeah. What, what's the one you're going to try to get? What's um, the one you want? I, I, I'm going to try to get that that junior that junior nickname. That's what I want. And if I don't get it from this box, I'm going to buy another one. <laughs>
Like, who are we, who are we kidding? Who are we kidding? I'm going to try to get another one. You're going to buy another box, not the card. Oh, no, it's more fun to get. It's, it, the fun is opening it. The fun is not having the card. The fun is acquiring the card. It's Christmas morning every time you open up a box. It is. Every time. That's what, it's what I've spent the last two years doing. Lots of Christmas, Christmas mornings. Thanks, Ryan. Enjoyed it. The best podcast in baseball is available anywhere you get your podcasts, including stltoday.com, where you can find the best podcast in baseball and all of the previous episodes, plus all of the constant Cardinals coverage. BPIB can also be found, say, on iTunes, where you can subscribe to the podcast. Subscriptions make the sponsorships possible, and sponsors make the podcast possible. So, too, do your ratings and reviews of the podcast. Help us know the direction we're going in, because BPIB doesn't exist here in, what, year nine? approaching year 10 so a decade of bpib doesn't exist without the community that has grown around it and hopefully has a product that it can shape and has been responsive to the people who listen to the best podcast in baseball imagine your home totally organized closet by design of st louis can help you get organized with 40 percent off plus an additional 15 percent off and get free installation call 1-800-b-y-d-e-s-i-g-n see curveball there to see if you're still listening 1-800 by design get organized with closet by design of st louis update your closets garage office pantry and more closet by design of st louis the official sponsor of the best podcast in baseball stay tuned stay healthy talk to you soon